Right now, many organizations are or should be aware of the harm that can be done when they fall far short of acceptable standards, corporate or otherwise, in areas such as equality, diversity and inclusion. And today's guests, Trier Lynn Bryant and Kim Scott of Just Work, have built a business around calling organizations out on these things or calling them in, as Kim likes to say. Kim wrote the book called Just Work, Get Done, Fast and Fair. And then she invited Trier to be the co-founder and CEO of this new company. And the company, Just Work LLC, helps clients to create and sustain equitable, fair, and just workplaces. Kim and Trier give keynotes. They run workshops on these themes for organizations in need of help on these themes. So in today's episode, which experiences inspired Kim to write the book in the first place? How Just Work got their message out into the marketplace? Which kinds of organizations need help with things like bias and prejudice? how the Just Work framework was developed by Kim and Trier, and which challenges Trier and Kim address and solve for corporations out there. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. This is the Training Business Podcast, and my name is Mark, and I'm the privileged host of the show. Every week, I get to deliver content to you as listeners, as subscribers. And of course, I get to speak to some wonderful people out there doing great work in the sphere of helping other organizations, people developing their talent and helping them to transform themselves. And really, this is what the show's about. It's helping people who help people to transform themselves, helping organizations to do great work. And if you're in the sphere of talent development, training and development, learning and development, this is the show for you. Every single Thursday, we have a fresh episode of the show. And can I therefore ask you to subscribe to the show because this helps to validate what my team and I do. And of course, helps to bring episodes, content, of the show, from the show, to the notice of you, and gives you a heads up of episodes as they appear. If this is your first time here, I think I've done a good job of explaining what the show is about. We're helping you as a practitioner, if you own your own training business or work in corporate in a learning and development practice, the kinds of topics, the kinds of guests we have on the show every single Thursday are here to help you on your training business or talent development journey. If you've got some ideas for content, for guests, please drop me a line. And the email address is very simple. It's mark at trainingbusiness.com. I read emails individually and, of course, reply personally. As I said before the music, we have two guests on the show. In fact, today we have Trier and Kim, and they are the principals of Just Work LLC. Kim is speaking to us today from California and Trier from New York. So it's a three-way conversation today, and I think you'll find loads of value in this week's episode. Trier, Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. So it's it's been a while, actually, since I've had two people uh, on the show with me. So that's three of us, at least a year and a half. Um, so thanks for your time today. And the reason I've I reached out to you originally was to... Well, to really address a book that I came across, in fact, two books, both linked to you, which is uh, Radical Candor and, and Just Work. 
and they're both quite punchy titles. So why don't we start with with Just Work? What inspired you? In fact, let's define what is Just Work first of all as a brand, as, as a mission, as a as a as a, a subject. Right. So, so just work is what happens when you optimize for collaboration and respect at the mm-hmm. same time, uh, in order not to allow things like bias, prejudice, and bullying to harm your decision making, your ability to collaborate, and and frankly, your ability to get get great results. Uh, also, useful to think about what happens. What what just work is not. Okay. What is it not then? <laughs> <laughs> So, so what it's not is is what I call brutal ineffectiveness. That's what mm. that's what happens when we optimize. Uh, instead of optimizing for collaboration, we co- mm. we try coercing people, and instead of respecting individuality, we demand conformity. Mm. And very often we do these things. I mean, sometimes you have egregious examples like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Okay. Um, or, or a lot of the things that happen in the American South, but, but other times we do these things sort of without even realizing that we're headed in the wrong direction. And that's what Trier and I are really looking to, yeah. to change. And have you come across many organizations in need of this? <laughs> we oh. haven't found any not in need of okay. this. Right. Okay. I mean, Mark, you know, at the end of the day, we, we want our, talent our employees to come into organizations and do their best work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so many things get in the way and there's so many workplace injustices that create this invisible tax for everyone where you're thinking about or you're focusing on something else and being distracted instead of just working. So how do we do that? What what tools, frameworks, um, and solutions can you bring within your organization to mm-hmm. help your leaders and your talent add things to their toolbox that they can leverage so that everyone can collaborate, respect for individuality, and just work? So you've kind of partially answered the question, but what inspired you? Were there particular events, particular contexts, which inspired you to, to write the book in the first place? Yes, absolutely. So before I wrote Just Work, I wrote a book called Radical Candor, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is really about caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. It's a, a, about feedback, how to give great feedback uh, in the workplace right. and, and also at home for that matter. And and if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And I believe feedback, <laughs> is, feedback is a gift. It's very valuable. And one of the most valuable gifts I got after I published the book came when I was giving a Radical Candor workshop at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company, we'll call her Michelle, mm-hmm. she had been the colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, someone I like and respect enormously and also one of too few black CEOs in tech or any other sector, frankly, for that matter. And when I finished giving the workshop, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I really like radical candor. I'm excited to roll it out at the company. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But she said, I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she explained to me that when she would offer people even the most gentle, compassionate criticism, she would get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And when she said that to me, I sort of had several realizations at the same time. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of friend and colleague to Michelle that I wanted to be. 
I had failed to be what I call in just work the uh, an upstander. I'd failed mm-hmm. even to notice the extent to which she always had to show up at every single meeting I was ever at with her, unfailingly pleasant and cheerful. And believe me, in the better part of a decade, she had what to be pissed off about, as we mm-hmm. all do at work. And yet she couldn't let it show. And I had failed to notice the toll that that must take on her. So that was number one. I'd failed to be the kind of person that I want to be. I'd failed to be a colleague and an upstander. Problem number two was that I realized all of a sudden that not only had I been in denial about the things that were happening to Michelle in the workplace, I had been in denial about the things that happened to me as a, as a white woman in the workplace. And, uh, and, and this is hard for the, the, the author of a book called Radical Cater to admit that I had been in denial, but I had been, I had just pretended that things were all fine when they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing I realized was that I had failed to be the kind of leader that I wanted to be. I had failed to create these kinds of environments that Trier was talking about in which everyone could just work. That's what, that's what I wanted. That's what the employees wanted. And yet I had allowed, uh, I had allowed workplace injustice to get in the way of our ability to just work. Okay. So following that realization, that um, epiphany, did the company evolve? Or was the the book first? So having this context, did that inspire you to write the book, to start the company and then the book? Or how did that actually flow? I'm a, I'm a writer. So I always Mm. start by writing and trying to, cause I didn't really, I didn't have a framework. I just had this sort of amorphous feeling and I, and I needed to come up with some, with a framework that would, that would help identify the problem so we could fix it. And, uh, and so I wrote first and then I realized, which something I had, should have realized from the outset that you can't a book, no matter how good it is. And I think this one is really good. It's not going to change people's behavior. <laughs> and so before I published the book, I started looking for someone who could help me build a company that would, that would help people uh, sort of put the ideas in, in the book in the practice. And, and that was how I met Trier. Mm. And I was lucky enough that she agreed to read the book and then agreed to start the company with me. So the the ideas came, the context presented itself uh, very timely, actually, and then came the, the the realization there's something that the marketplace needs. I, I presume you didn't see anything addressing this particular requirement, and then you decided on some kind of uh, book outline, some uh, mission behind that, uh, and then you talked about the company and then the framework. Is that roughly how it flowed? You're making it sound much more linear than it was. I guess I am. I guess I am. And I, th- and I think <laughs> I'll tell you why, because a lot of people often think, well, should I start the company first and then the book? Or should I come up with some inspiration, then a book, and then the brand? So, th- well, of course, it attracted Trier to the business, which is great. Right. And so I had already been doing a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Mm with various companies across various industries. And so what really stood out to me about the book and the framework is, you know, and a lot of learning and development professionals will feel this way is that there's not a lot of tactical and practical things out in the marketplace for organizations to leverage and to bring into their org and to bring into their Mm -hmm. teams. We talk a lot about it and we talk about why it's bad and what we like all the things you shouldn't do. But sometimes it's not just about what you shouldn't do. We need to be very clear on what people should do. And how and to that's do it. Where, yeah. And how to do it. And yeah. that's where Just Work really sets um, itself apart 
from mm. other things because it gets, you know, that's really Kim's superpower, right? Whether it was radical candor or just work, Kim can take these nuanced human experiences and really put a framework together to say, do this very in a very tactical way, in a practical way that, you know, immediately after an hour long keynote or a half day workshop, your employees can go back to their desk, go back to their meetings and immediately start taking action. That's going to not only enhance performance, right? So that we can just work, but also a better, more inclusive experience so that people feel valued in their organizations and that they feel that they can mm. really, it's not just about having a seat at the table, but it's also about, is your voice being heard, right? Mm. And so what are things that we can do to remove those workplace injustices um, so that we can cultivate that culture and environment? And was it difficult creating a framework to to build workshops and to use your word practical interventions on the basis of the book? Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it was tipped. It was the, the hard thing for me. There's two difficult things about writing. The first thing is getting inside your head. And the second thing is getting back out. Yes. Uh, and, and so <laughs> I, I actually wrote, I wrote almost the whole book and realized I had the wrong structure and threw it away and started over. So it actually took me four. I started writing this book, um, uh, sort of before the Harvey Weinstein story broke. Mm-hmm. So before me too. Um, and, and before the murder of George Floyd and, uh, and that wave of, of racial reckoning. And so, so one of the things that was hard about, there was so much to read and to come to grips with as I wrote the book. It was hard to find the time to read. But I would say the thing, the thing that was most important to me was identifying the role that we all play and not in a finger pointing shaming kind of way, because Mm. we, these are mistakes that we all make. So structuring the book around the things we can do as the people harmed by, by, by injustice in the workplace, no matter what manifestation it takes. And we are all harmed. Everyone in the workplace at some point is harmed. Mm. Some of us more than others, but we are all harmed. So being willing, sort of, as I said, it was hard for me to come to grips with, with being a victim, right? I didn't, our society, uh, I think globally is so ambivalent about, about admitting one is a victim. And so it was hard for me to come to grips with that. So what can you do as, as someone who's harmed by workplace injustice to choose a response? Cause I think, I know, so often in my career, I defaulted to silence. And so, so how, how could I not default to silence? And then the other role that I played too often was, was, and this was even harder to come to grips with the person who caused harm, like even less than being, than wanting to be a victim, did I want to be the perpetrator of, of injustice? And yet so often I had caused harm to others in the workplace. So, Learning how to to listen to feedback when you've when, when you realize that you've caused harm and to address it to not to just retreat into denial is really important. Mm. And then also sometimes we're the 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 observer, we're the upstander. Hopefully, what I failed to do with Michelle, uh, and and it's your job there to intervene. It's your responsibility to intervene, not just to remain silent. Silent, not only for the sake of the person who's being harmed, but also for your own sake. One of the things I realized as I wrote the book is that when we are the, when we fail to be an upstander, when we become the silent bystander, it is 
it can really eat and erode at your your own sense of who you are and and well being. And I guess then you see this in in companies as well. When that is not addressed root and branch, it also creates victims in the companies, the clients you work with. Yes, it it creates victims, and and the the victims are not only the people harmed; they're also the people who observe because you you feel slimed by someone else's bad behavior, you know. Uh, And then, last but not least, sometimes we're the leader, and there there it's our job to prevent uh, these things from happening. But of course, it's impossible to prevent. So, so that's the great thing about being a leader: your job is impossible. So it, it then becomes your job to respond in a way that prevents it from happening again. Okay. Um, so, so Kim, you 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 wrote the book. Um, you approached Trier. Can I ask you, Trier? Then, what was your feeling when you came across this framework? How did you see this becoming a company? That's something that you would lead. Yeah. Great question, because I had such an aha moment in reading the book. What's so special about the book is, you know, when we name the root causes of workplace injustice, very simply as bias, prejudice, and bullying. Bias is not meaning it. Prejudice is meaning it. And then bullying is being mean with the intent to cause harm. Um, Our own personal stories bring that to life. So as I was reading the book, I was reflecting on instances where I was harmed by bias or where I had caused, you know, harm by showing prejudice um, or even by bullying. And um, the, the, the one part though, that was bullying is that if, if, you know, Mark, if you would have asked me before I read this book, Trier, have you ever been bullied? You know, um, I'm an Air Force Academy graduate, seven years combat vet in the Air Force. Of course, I've been bullied. Like you come for me, I'm going to come for you, right? And then Kim is like, "No, bullying is being mean with the intent to cause harm." And it's like, "Oh my gosh, I've been insidious. so much in my mm. career." Mm. But did I ever? If I couldn't name it in that way, then I didn't solve for it. I never responded. I never stood up for myself because I couldn't name it in that way. And that was that. That was something that I had to face and kind of. Um, you know, process for myself. And it was very powerful. And and we've seen that within companies and organizations, when you introduce the framework, people pause and you think about your own experiences and all the different roles, because, you know, we talk about this, you can be in a, in a 30 minute meeting and play each of those roles. You can be a person harmed, you can cause harm, you can, you know, hopefully be a observer that turns into uh, an upstander and intervenes. And maybe you're the leader that you need to prevent something from occurring. And so these roles, we can go through these roles very quickly in a very short period of time. Um, but our day-to-day experiences um, really bring the framework to light. And it also helps people understand that this is happening within our organizations. And so if you don't see it, that means one, you don't know what you're looking for, or two, you're not looking in the right places. But we tell folks like there's going to be bias at least once in every meeting that you have. But one, do people have the courage to flag it and call people in? We call people, we say calling people in versus calling them out. And then two. So can um, I ask you why, why do you call it that calling people in as opposed to out? That's curious. Yeah. You know, um, for for you, when we talk about what can you do to, you know, confront bias, we call them bias, bias disruptors. We have to disrupt the bias as soon as it happens to not let it perpetuate and to continue to go on. But let's be honest, Mark, like it can be uncomfortable, right? Um, I'll give you an example. Would you, are you open to some feedback? Yes. Okay. So when we first got on the call, you said to Kim and I, you were like, Hey guys, excited to have you here. 
<laughs> now, typically, Kim and I would throw a purple flag. That's our uh, that is our norm of like a action or a word, so that we know that someone has exhibited bias. So we could have we would have said purple flag and then said, "Hey, Mark, you know, you just said guys. Guys is actually not an inclusive term. Um, oh, you know, okay. and just working on your you know inclusive language." Um, and then you say like, oh, okay, got it, right? And then that's something that you can work on, right? But if you don't have that rapport or you don't have that purple flag, right? So now, Mark, the next time that we jump on a, a, a podcast with you, you'll know what purple flag means, right? Where purple flag, that means someone has said something where you've exhibited or said bias. Um, and then what happens next? You either say, hey, thanks, I understand, and we keep going. Or we say, hey, I don't understand, explain it to me. Um, and then we have to continue to flag and call people in on that bias because it can be uncomfortable. So, we so what, what call could one say? Calling them out. Got it. So what could say one say instead of guys? Where, where is the, the language that needs to be changed there? Oh, yeah, you could just say, hey, you all, or hey, everyone, everyone great to yes. meet you all. Or, you know, I love... I've spent time in the South. I love the fact that like, you know, I can say y'all and it's like an inclusive <laughs> or folks, right? Folks. Um, okay. Yeah. But just thinking about inclusive ladies, some inclusive language, some people would say, oh, well, can I say ladies? I just recommend, you know, staying away from any gendered language until mm. people have, you know, shared their gender with you. And so it's very easy just to use, you know, uh, gender neutral language until, mm. you know, People have shared that and you feel comfortable where you're not IDing it for them, but they're self-IDing it to you. Okay. Now, I guess some people <laughs> listening would say, you know, that, okay, that's mild. There must be something more substantial, uh, to use Kim's word, uh, egregious, that uh, is tantamount to workplace injustice that people, such that people feel we need the help from just work. What what kinds so, of things that you know where you, they're not purple flags? They're I don't know red flags or something like that. They're something really serious, systemic that need uh, an intervention from experts. So I think that bias actually needs intervention. I think the bias okay. disruptors. We can talk about other bigger things in a moment. Mm -hmm, so I mm -hmm. so in addition to breaking down the problem by role, we've broken down the problem by by the different sort of components of workplace okay. injustice. So bias is the first one and bias, I, I, you know, I experienced, I experienced sort of sexual assault in, in, in my career, but I will say that the accumulation of bias had a bigger impact on me than that assault. I'm not saying that assault is not a big deal. What I'm saying is that the repetitive stress injury of bias is a big deal. And so I think disrupting it, and there's, there's, you've probably read this. There's a lot of, a lot of literature on, oh, the unconscious bias training doesn't work. And I think part of the reason why it doesn't work is that it leaves people feeling helpless. Like there's nothing I could do. It's just the way my mind works. We are pattern makers and we can change the pattern. And so this, this bias interrupter that Trier pointed out. Uh, is is really important. Like just this ability to have a shared vocabulary. We we use mm -hmm. purple flag. Other teams say you know peace. Other teams say come again. You choose your shared vocabulary. But there's a, a word or a phrase that you can use that lets everybody know that bias has been observed. And then the second part of the bias bias in disruptors is you need also sort of a shared understanding for how to respond as the person harmed. Cause I don't know, you responded very well, but sometimes when I, when my bias is disrupted, I feel ashamed. I feel ashamed cause I didn't intend to harm anyone. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, and then I usually don't respond well when I'm ashamed. And and sometimes I'm doubly ashamed. Not only have I harmed someone else, but I don't really know what I did wrong or why it matters. And so now I'm ashamed of both having harmed someone and of my own ignorance. <laughs> and and so so teaching people just to say when when your bias is flagged, you respond in one of two ways. It, it always starts with thank you because it's difficult for the other person to flag it. And then you say, I get it. I'm going to work on improving it. And by the way, it's hard to work on improving it. Like guys is probably a deeply ingrained habit and you're going to keep doing it. And that's okay as long as, you know, and because uh, I have the same one. I haven't convinced my daughter not to say guys, for example. Um, so it's it's difficult. And then the other thing is you you, you can say, I'm, thank you for pointing it out, but I don't quite get it. Can you tell me, can you explain it to me after the meeting? And you don't want to interrupt the whole meeting because again, the promise of just work is that you'll get, get it done fast and fair. And so, so we want, we want the meeting to go on, but we don't want the, the bias to go unnoticed. And then the third part of the bias disruptor is that it's really important to commit to using it. To using it at least once in every meeting. Because if you haven't flagged any bias in a meeting, it does not mean no bias occurred. It just means either you didn't notice it or you didn't have a norm in which it was natural to point it out. So I think the bias disruptors, I think it's actually a big deal. But it's not only, it's not all bias. Like sometimes it is prejudice, sometimes it is bullying. As it's intentional. In, yeah, yeah. So Trier pointed out. Yeah, exactly. Trier pointed out the difference between if if prejudice is meaning it, uh, uh, that's where there's a real belief, a consciously held. If bias is usually unconscious, prejudice is not unconscious. There's a consciously held belief, but bullying there may there may be no there may be no belief at all. The person's just trying to 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 mm. knock you off your game. So what can we do? Trier and I have developed several sort of interventions for okay. prejudice and bullying. And then we could also talk about what happens when power enters the equation. And that's where Which you get where it goes from bad yeah. to worse. And I guess Trier, that, that, that's a nice segue to your experience. I mean, you, you've been in the military. Um, that's what some people might say is a theory X organization, you know, hierarchical authoritarian uh, orders come down. It's not flat. Uh, it's not a meritocracy. Um, do you find that particular organizations are natural breeding grounds for these kinds of of behaviors um, culturally, traditionally that that really need this more than other companies? Yeah, of course, and that's across. You know, it's agnostic of industry mm. or location or region because we're all human. We all have our biases. We all have prejudices that were, you know, taught to us or learned through our environments. And we bring that into the workplace. And so organizations have to account for that. And we have to, you know, one of the things that we talk about for prejudice is you have to have a code of conduct, right? Organizations have to draw that line in the sand that says, you can believe whatever it is you want to believe, but when you come into our organization, like these are the things that you can say and that these are the things that you can do. And also these are the things you cannot say and you cannot do to manage people's expectations as far as what is um, allowed in your organization for the environment and the culture that you are building and cultivating for individuals. And so there's a lot of um, 
needs to be very intentional and very thoughtful. And, but it is also a, in evolution, right? I think that a lot of organizations did not have very clear, explicit code of conducts. Um, I think particularly in the U S when we have this administration, this new previous administration come in and people were emboldened to think and say things in a professional setting. And I, and there was a lot of companies that were not prepared for that. We very quickly in the U S particularly went from politics are taboo. We don't talk about it at work to now it is front and center and it's talking about it and it's impacting so many facets and areas of our lives. And so were organizations ready for that? There was a lot that weren't. Um, and there was a lot that didn't have explicit guidelines and a code of conduct in place to manage people's expectations and let them know very clearly what's expected from them in their professional workplace environment. And are you not uh, in brackets, guys, not going to say guys, are you both uh, clear on how you market yourselves? How do you convince organizations that this is something they, they need and get in the door of those organizations? How do you sell this idea as a product into organizations, clients? Yeah. Uh, well, Mark, from my perspective, having been a, pe- a previous chief people officer and having worked with so mm. many organizations, um, I don't think that we need to convince anyone that they need it organizations know that this is something that they need and that they're solving for because they are seeing, um, they, they get, they hear the feedback from their employees. They see the work, the injustice getting in the way of work. You see your promotion rates that are inequitable. You see your pay equity. Like there's so you can measure your bias. And so we know that it exists within the organizations and we know that this is occurring. So it's like, what are you going to do about it? And just work is you know a very tactical and practical solution that you can add to your framework that will enhance performance that adds to your culture um, but again also gives not only your individuals but also mm. your leaders again tactical things that they can very quickly and easily implement um, to get things done and there's others that take longer that we work with organizations but there are things that you can easily um, you know roll out and implement and start seeing those change mm. to start getting changed behavior. What was it like uh, taking those um, the, the, the concepts, the, the six problems that, for example, you reference in the book, Just Work, what was it like taking that, converting that into a product that you could sell and then running training programs for clients? It's been really exciting. I mean, as Trier said, most of our clients, in fact, 100% of our, of our clients are, are inbound. Companies who have where someone, an executive at the company has read the book and they know they need, they need these problems. Right. And so some, some will come to us and say, we need the bias disruptors. Others Mm. will come and say, we need help with writing a code of conduct to address, deal with it when people say or do things that are actually prejudiced at the company. Others will say, you know, we have a problem with bullying, uh, and, and we need to, we need your help in rolling out rolling out consequences for bullying. Others will say, we just need a shared vocabulary of in our employee base to talk about these things. And so there we'll do sort of uh, a keynote address to help people, mm. uh, help people come up with that shared vocabulary. I think of course there are, you know, it's not all, it's not all sweetness and light though. I will admit that there have been conversations I've had where people will say to me something along the lines of, you know, we all knew we needed radical candor. We all knew we needed feedback. That's a known problem, but this just works stuff. It's, and I'm like, 
do you not read the newspaper? Like, how do you not know about workplace injustice? Like, Black Lives Matter. Have you not read about? Have you not read about me? Like, it's remarkable to me. Like, um, Ibram X. Kendi says that denial is the heartbeat of racism, and I think it's also the heartbeat of workplace injustice. There are plenty of companies that are not coming to us because they think the problem is elsewhere. You know, other companies have these problems. This would never happen on my watch. And it is, these things are happening. I I mean, this was one of the things I really had to come to grips with in in writing the book is, is realizing how often I got it wrong and badly wrong, sort of shamefully wrong. The other thing we see, Mark, is, um, just to add a little clarification, when I said that organizations know this is happening, there's always someone in your organization that knows that this is happening, but it may not be your executive leadership team, or it may not be leaders who are responsible for it. And that's where that denial comes in. But there, if you go talk to your underrepresented populations, you go talk to the women in your organization, the Asian population, Hispanic, uh, Latina, uh, your Black professionals, you know, your parents your caretakers, like there's, there's underrepresented groups that face this and deal with this every day. And that's what we tell leaders is that, you know, can you imagine how much more work some of your teams and um, employees would be doing if they weren't dealing with this in every meeting, it's every hour, sometimes, you know, like every 15 minutes of the day. And there's so, there's also, you know, really great research um, that organizations have done about how, workplace injustice and harm has increased in this remote environment that we've had to navigate and work in uh, during COVID. So we know that there's more harm occurring. This is happening in our organizations. And so leaders and, you know, teams have to step up and say, what are we going to do about it? Are you working with associates or people who are not employees to get them licensed? I mean, do you have an intention to license just work or the framework? How do you get, uh, let's say, people in the door with wearing your hat? So right now, Trier and I do the the talks and workshops okay. ourselves. Right. I think right. that we we will wind up training, but the the you know there's a lot of there's a lot of literature that shows that train the trainers of limited impact, and it's so it's so important to us to get this right that we want to do the work hands on ourselves before we start licensing right. and teaching others others to do it. So I think this year uh, you're looking at Trier and me, uh, right. uh, but, but that will and change I, over time. And I think that, you know, um, I think that like a lot of our conversations are in partnership with learning and development teams and internal DE&I teams. Right. And I think that, you know, for the organization that's large enough that I do think the audience that would be the most appropriate for training the trainer would be DEI teams, not necessarily learning and development teams, um, because the like there is a lot of follow up and engagement that occurs with this. This is not a you do a workshop and then people just go off and use this. There is a lot of engagement um, and considerations that need to be taken. Um, that need to be had when we're talking about these workplace injustices, because again, when power gets introduced, that's when it gets really bad. And now we're talking about, you know, discrimination, harassment, physical violations. And these are topics that really can deteriorate a culture and, and totally bring an organization to their needs. So being very thoughtful about 
who are the stakeholders, who's responsible for this, and how we work together collectively to do better and prevent these things from corrupting your organization. Yeah, and there's a massive market for that right now, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you, I think you um, said in passing that there isn't an organization you can think of that doesn't need something like this. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, we, and as human beings, we need this. And the, mm. the, the work is, it's inspiring to do. Like, I think that very often people come to this with a sense of dread, but what, what we should dread is, is, is allowing a problem to continue to persist. That is a solvable problem. Like, why allow a bad pattern to get grooved into our organizations when we can create a new and better one? So it's, it's work that we are excited to do and that we enjoy doing with people. And of course, building the business case for organizations, this is why you need this. This is why your organization is suffering the consequences yeah. of not taking this seriously. And here's the business that's case right. for how you can improve. And I guess yeah. that's, that's for a learning and development perspective. What is the ROI on this? It's massive, well, right? Yeah, it's better decision making, better mm-hmm. collaboration, uh, and and therefore better results. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, why would you allow problems that are going to prevent your team from working well together and prevent each individual on your team from from maximizing their performance? And uh, and it's ultimately going to hurt your ability to achieve results. So so you're going to improve performance of individuals. You're you'll when you improve sort of collaboration, you improve your collective results. And when you improve individual decision making, you're going to get further faster as as an organization. You're going to achieve your goals. So the books are called Radical Candor and Just Work. Where can people find out more about you, Trier and Kim? Uh, so re- there's a website, uh, justworktogether.com, where we have a lot of resources, and mm-hmm. you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, and you can also go to radicalcandor.com, and a lot of resources there. And you can follow me personally. I'm at Kimball Scott, and Trier has more clout at Twitter than I am. She's <laughs> at Trier. At, at Trier? Yeah. Yep. And at you can Trier. get and you can book. Yeah, and you can get both books on Amazon. Okay. Or Kim your and- independent bookseller. You know, <laughs> or your, or your okay. independent bookseller. <laughs> okay, so Kim and Trier, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Thank you, Mark. My sincere thanks to Trier and Kim for being my guests today on the show. It's been wonderful having three people, in other words, myself and and the two guests today. And it's not often that I have the chance to speak to two guests at the same time. It's been a while since I've done that. And if you've got ideas about the kinds of guests that you'd like to have featured on the show, please drop me a line. My email address again is mark at trainingbusiness.com. I'm sure you've got great ideas for episodes and content or even critique about uh, past episodes. And you can find, of course, plenty of episodes, past episodes and future episodes on your podcast platform of choice because there's a fresh episode of the podcast every single Thursday without fail. Whether it's on Apple or Stitcher or Spotify, you will find episodes and I think that you'll find value. So if you've got some idea for an episode, let me know. If you've got 
people in mind who you think would benefit from the content on the show, please let them know about the show. And finally, please subscribe because it costs you absolutely nothing and is so, so important to me to let me know that what I'm doing is validated by people like you and is valuable to people like you. Until next Thursday, when I hope to have your company again, look after yourself. Keep training, keep selling. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.